and remain standing for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading from our Bibles today in Amos chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 3. This is the word of God. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon and him who holds the scepter of Beth-Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Geza and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Geza and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnants of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people from, to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Timon, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds. With shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kerioth, and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. This is the word of God. Pray with me this morning. Our God and our Father, as we hear these words, thus says the Lord over and over in this passage. We recognize with humble hearts that these sobering words are your words. And so, Father, we ask for your help this morning. 
Holy Spirit, be with us today and illuminate to our minds and especially to our hearts the meaning and the import of these great words that we might know, that we might understand, that we might believe, and that we might be changed. Father, give us a deep reverence for your word and for you. May the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts on your word this morning be pleasing in your sight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we are continuing on in our study of the Old Testament minor prophets, and we come now to the book of Amos, the third book in our study of the minor prophets. Remember that the designation minor prophets has nothing to do with the significance of these prophets of God in the Old Testament or with the importance of their message that God spoke and revealed through them. They're only called minor in terms of their length relative to the much longer writings of the four so-called major prophets in the Old Testament scriptures, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And of course, we'll say this again at the beginning of this book like we have the others, as we come to another one of these 12 books of prophecy here in Amos's prophecy, Remember, especially as we come into the beginning of the book in the way that it starts here today, remember the all-important words of Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1 where he says that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man alone, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And remember Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3 that all scripture including the word of Amos is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. We have to be reminded of those truths whenever we encounter any verse or any passage or any chapter or any book of scripture in our Bibles, we've got to remember that all of it is breathed out by God. All of it is the inerrant word of God given by the Holy Spirit through the prophets, through the apostles who wrote it. And so all of it is, as the living active word of God, profitable for us. This passage today is profitable for us in a way that no other words or writings or books in the history of the world are or ever could be. And that's especially important when it comes to those kinds of verses or passages or books of the Bible that tend to be lesser known to us as God's people because, because there are certain places in the scriptures that don't get read as much, that don't get taught or preached as much. And there's all kinds of reasons why that's true, right? Of various portions of the God-breathed word. And it's a tragedy, isn't it? Whenever God's people end up ignoring or, or neglecting any portion of what God has written, any portion of what God has breathed out and revealed for our profit, for our good, 
for our spiritual nourishment and encouragement and strengthening as he works through his word with divine power to transform our lives by the renewing of our minds, to equip us and mature us and strengthen us and grow us for every good work by the power of his holy word. But, but it happens, doesn't it, if we're honest, right? There are certain places, certain portions of the word of God that we're unfamiliar with that we don't spend much time in and sometimes that's because they're hard for us to understand we we read them we don't know what's going on what the meaning of the words are and so we end up sort of skipping over the top of them in our regular readings we we kind of cover the territory in our read through the bible in a year plan but we never really take in the meaning of certain portions of scripture or, again, if we're honest, there are those places in God's Word that when we read them, we, we do understand, at least in a basic sense. We, we understand what they mean, but, but they make us uncomfortable for various reasons. And so, kind of like walking through a bad part of town after sunset, we tend to kind of keep our heads down and not look around too much and hurry our way through so that we don't have to deal with anything that's scary or, or, or uncomfortable. I don't want to focus on all this judgment. Let's just get through this and move on to something happier, right? If we're honest. But all Scripture is breathed out by God for our profit and for our good. Even the difficult parts. Even the uncomfortable parts. And... Let's just acknowledge this morning that very often it's especially those parts through which God works to reveal his holiness and to expose our sinfulness, to correct us, to reprove us, as Paul says to Timothy, to bring us to greater and greater heights of knowing his holiness and seeking holiness in our own lives. And so we dare not neglect those uncomfortable portions of Scripture. And so as we come today to this third book of the Minor Prophets, the book of Amos, we're coming to one of those places that just might be less than familiar to us, and maybe one of the big reasons for that, if you've been reading the opening chapters, is because once again, it's uncomfortable. There's an awful lot of focus that's given right out of the gate on the wrath of God. And on divine judgment against sin and all of that seems pretty unpleasant, doesn't it? And it's tempting sometimes to say to ourselves, well, haven't we covered enough of that ground already? Do we really need to focus in this kind of depth with any kind of frequency on these themes of the wrath of God and the justice of God towards sinners? Well, I would suggest that we all make sure that we are being very, very careful to distinguish between discomfort with those themes of God's wrath and judgment on the one hand and resistance towards those themes on the other hand. It's one thing, right, to experience the very normal, very real kinds of feelings of discomfort that we have whenever we talk about divine judgment. 
It's not comfortable. It's not fun. There's something normally unpleasant about it. But it's another thing entirely to be resistant toward that truth about who God is and about how he deals with sin and say, no, God, I don't want to hear that. Is there anything that God could ever say that we dare say, no, God, I don't want to hear that to? Let alone say in our hearts, I don't want to believe that about the God who I worship and who I serve. I want to pretend that he's not this way. And so I'm going to ignore these things and only focus on the things that make me feel good and believe only that about my God, fashioning him after our own imaginations. We don't want to do that, right? We don't want to avoid these things that God has revealed about himself. We don't want to allow ourselves to be tempted to think that this God, who spends so much time talking about wrath and justice in the Old Testament, is somehow different from the God of the New Testament, who's kinder and gentler. God doesn't change, right? He is the same yesterday and today and forever. He's not less wrathful towards sin in the New Testament, and he wasn't less loving or merciful towards sinners in the Old Testament. Jesus himself, you realize this, in the Gospels, spent more time and spoke more words of inspired scripture in the Gospels about the subject of hell and the eternal conscious punishment of sin and sinners than he did speaking about heaven or any other single subject, in fact. And it's probably true that the reason why we find ourselves skipping past these kinds of places in scripture that so often emphasize these uncomfortable and unpleasant themes isn't just because they're uncomfortable. It's, it's actually, if we're honest, because we're resistant to them. And listen, I'm not suggesting in any way that these themes should feel comfortable to us or good to us, that we should have pleasant feelings about God's wrath and judgment that gets expressed towards sinners and the reality of eternal hell. We can glorify the God who is just, but to feel good and, and gleeful about those things means something's wrong with us, right? If our hearts are numb or unfazed by the reality of God's holy wrath, or worse, if you enjoy the idea of sinners enduring the fullness of God's judgment for all eternity, then, then I would suggest that there's a lot that needs to change about your heart. It shouldn't feel good to contemplate these things. It should make us feel uncomfortable. It should distress us. It should make us full of sorrow to contemplate what unrepentant sinners will endure. And, and at the same time, we can't resist these things. We can't try to avoid them. And if we're prone to doing that, then we need to avail ourselves, I think, of, of those God-breathed truths more and not less. If you can look in your heart and honestly say, yeah, it's not just that they make me uncomfortable, it's that I don't want them in my mind, so I avoid them, then that's when you need to focus on them more, not less. Just like it's true that the less I feel like reading God's word at all in a general sense, 
the more I certainly need to be reading God's word, right? It's when I feel like praying the least that is precisely when I need to be praying the most. So when we come to the book of Amos, which opens, yes, with this singular emphasis and message on God's anger towards sin and his purposes of judgment for the world against the sinful nations of the world and even against Israel and Judah. Know this, we need it. And the book won't end in the same way it began. But it does begin this way, right? And I hope we'll see that it's good for us to be exposed to this emphasis on a regular basis, to come to terms with it, because that way, that way, we understand God more truly, more fully, according to who he is in his unchanging nature. And that helps us come to terms with sin more truly and more fully, and really understand, when we understand how he feels towards sin, and what he does, how serious, then we understand how serious sin is. Then we come to understand, and only then can we come to understand the great depth and breadth and height of his mercy and love towards sinners, ourselves included, most truly and most fully. Not until we take sin seriously will we know his love truly. Not until we understand his justice more fully will we know that sin and understand his love. So, Amos chapter 1. Let's do a little bit of overview and background and introduction today. I think we're going to make it through verse 2 of chapter 1. And then we'll move on next week and try to cover much of what is said in chapter 1 and in the first part of chapter 2. But in verse 1, of chapter 1, Amos tells us a little bit about himself as a prophet. He tells us his name, he tells us where he was from, he tells us who he was commissioned by God to prophesy to, and he tells us when. The name Amos comes from a Hebrew word that means something heavy, it, and it, it often has the sense of being carried or being borne up, and of course as a prophet of God, who's speaking the very words of God, as the mouthpiece of God, Amos is one who is being borne up by God himself for this task, for this ministry. But it's also possible that his name refers to a, a heavy burden that is to be carried. And that in that sense, it's a reference to the prophecy, the message that Amos is proclaiming as a great burden of judgment for the Gentile nations and for Judah and especially for Israel. And then Amos tells us that he was among the shepherds of Tekoa. He identifies very likely what his job was. He was a sheep herder when God revealed his word to Amos and commissioned him to speak to the people of God. And he tells us where he's from. Tekoa was a small town to the south of Jerusalem and Bethlehem in the highlands of the southern kingdom of Judah. But Amos says there in verse 1 that God called him specifically and primarily to prophesy not to Judah, but to Israel, to the northern kingdom. And there are words, which we'll see next week, both for Israel and for Judah, but the bulk of the message that God is speaking through Amos is directed toward the kingdom of Israel in the north. 
and in verse 1, Amos tells us when he prophesied this message from God. In the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And unfortunately, we don't know anything about the earthquake. We don't have any kind of way to date which earthquake or when it was. Otherwise, we could get really specific about a date for this book. But we do know about the king of Israel and the king of Judah that he names here. And that gives us a general time frame of when Amos lived and wrote this book. Both of those kings, Jeroboam and Uzziah, had long reigns in the first half of the 8th century B.C. Uzziah reigned in Judah in the south for about 50 years from 790 B.C. to about 740 B.C. And Jeroboam reigned in Israel in the north for about 40 years from about 793 B.C. to about 743 B.C. So that makes Amos a contemporary of the prophet Hosea, which we've already studied, as well as Isaiah, possibly Jonah. And it means that Amos was prophesying right after Micah prophesied. And what we know about the northern kingdom of Israel at that time is this, and we talked about this when we were studying Hosea as well, shortly before Amos's prophecy was given, the nation right to their north of Syria, who always pestered them and plagued them and took their territory and kind of shrunk them and and withered them. Syria, right before Amos's time, had been defeated by the kingdom of Assyria to the east. And when Assyria defeated Syria, they left Israel alone for about 50 years during the reign of Jeroboam. And that allowed Jeroboam to expand the borders of Israel back to what they were in Solomon's days. And that gave Israel more control over some key trade routes in the region. And that resulted in Israel becoming very, very wealthy and accumulating a ton of wealth in the nation, which produced a half-century period of great affluence and prosperity and peace, at least politically, in the northern kingdom that everybody became very, very comfortable with. And there's one thing that we know from history itself about nations that become very wealthy and very comfortable. They also tend to become very complacent, right? Spiritually, morally. We know that from history itself. We know that from the testimony of Scripture for sure. Where there is an increase of wealth and affluence and prosperity, there is almost invariably the increase of sinful licentiousness and idolatry and immorality and injustice. And the nation of Israel was no exception whatsoever, even though they were the nation of people that were, were chosen by God and blessed by God. And yet in their comfort, they became complacent and they began to stray spiritually from him. And, in fact, it's precisely because they were God's chosen people that God is speaking so seriously to them through Amos's words. He doesn't just speak words of judgment to them. Well, 
We'll see next week he has plenty to say to the Gentile nations too. And all of that is, is massively, whatever he says to the Gentile nations in chapter 2 is massively relevant, or chapter 1 rather, massively relevant to the current nations of the world. All of them should pay attention, including America should pay attention when God says, I have issue with the way you're living out there. But the bulk of God's message of judgment is directed towards his own nation, toward Judah, and, and especially toward Israel, which is massively relevant to all of those who would call themselves God's people, meaning the church in the world today. And see, that's where we're going to profit the most in this book. As the people of God, from the words of God that are spoken here in Scripture through his prophet Amos, to his chosen people, the people of Israel thought of themselves as the people of God because objectively that's what they were, chosen by him, right, from among the nations. They had, one scholar says, ancestral dealings with God, right? He had brought them out of Egypt. He had constituted them as a nation, as his people. He gave them the law. He gave them their whole system of religion, He's going to remind them of that in chapter 3. And that's why he's speaking to them through the prophet. Because in spite of all that he'd done for them, in spite of his kingship over them, in spite of his specific authority over them in a way that was unique among the nations, and in spite of everything he'd revealed to them and given to them, they were taking all of it for granted and living according to their own wisdom and understanding in the ways of the world and their own, according to their own sinful desires. Instead of living in light of God's sovereign majesty and in light of God's word and for the pleasure of God's glory. And we will feel the force and we will feel the burden of God's word through Amos most profitably when we recognize that he's addressing his chosen people and when we listen as his chosen people. And to his people Israel, through the words of Amos, God focuses in this book on three central points throughout these nine chapters. Three central points that we'll see in the coming weeks. First of all, God says to his people in this book that with great privilege, which they had, right? And they were enjoying during this 50-year period. With great privilege often comes great peril. In their privilege during the days of Jeroboam and Israel, they assumed that their security was kind of automatic. Well, we're God's people. It doesn't really matter how we live. He's got our back. We're the chosen ones. We're special. Nothing bad's going to happen to us. Look at all that's good for us. They assumed their security was automatic. They, they took it for granted. But God speaks clearly to them that the nearer he is to them, the more is expected of them, not the less. The greater his scrutiny is towards his own people. And so, as much as the Gentile nations had stirred up God's anger, Israel, as God's chosen privileged people, provoked his wrath even more. Peter says in the New Testament, 
referring to a truth that is very often spoken in and put on display in the Old Testament, Peter says that judgment begins with the house of God. That's where God's focus is most targeted. And that's the message I think that the Church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century needs to hear and ought to take well to heart. Second, Amos teaches in this book that whatever happened in the past, past history, never takes the place of present spiritual commitment to God. Don't sit on your laurels. Don't get complacent. And that emphasis is going to get really, really clear in chapter 5. A commitment to God and to His holiness in the past means nothing if in the present His people don't stay committed to Him and to His truth as their Lord. And again, people who call themselves Christians people of God, churches in America and in the world today, denominations of churches in America and in the world today would do well to consider how far they have drifted from God's holiness and faithfulness compared to the faithfulness of past generations. And then thirdly, Toward the ending chapters of this book, in chapter 7 and 8 especially, Amos is going to insist that words are hollow and empty. Religious words and even religious deeds don't matter, and in fact, God hates and despises them unless they are the genuine outflow of hearts that love and trust God and that honor and revere God's word and that love one another in the way that God has graciously and mercifully loved us. And there's not a church in the world that wouldn't do well to meditate on that message regularly. Call yourself whatever you want. Identify yourself as a Christian if you want. Sing all the right things. Say all the right things. Profess all the right things. But if your heart is cold towards God and not pouring out love towards the world and one another, and not honoring his holy word, then it rings hollow with him and in fact provokes his wrath. So God's message through Amos, again, was directed at the earthly nation of Israel, specifically in the 8th century B.C., but it's in our Bible still because it was intended by God to take a timeless place in his God-breathed, living, active, all-sufficient, profitable word so that it can speak perpetually to all of his people, to all of us who in Christ Jesus are the Israel of God, which Paul calls us in Galatians chapter 6. These words are spoken to us, the true descendants of Abraham in Christ, for our direction, for our instruction, for our admonition, for our exhortation, so that we can know how to live as citizens of the kingdom of God in this world because his kingdom is not of this world. It's not like the kingdom of this world. It stands opposed, the kingdom of God does, to the values of this world. And the kingdom of God cannot and must not be built according to the wisdom of this world or by the methods of this world. 
And again, in the 21st century, Christians and churches will do well to recognize that. So Amos is profitable and important territory and ground for us to cover. And that's, that's some of the background of this great book of God's word. So look with me now. Again, just look at with me at verse 2 as, as we introduce the book today before we move into the body of chapters 1 and 2 next week. Verse 2, Amos says, The Lord, recognize again, it's in all capital letters, The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers, painting a picture that when God speaks, Everybody listens. From the shepherds in the fields to those at the height of the tallest mountain, the voice of God shakes it all. Now, studying the book myself for the past couple weeks and focusing this past week, I found just there in verse 2 so much great truth, so much profound revelation about God and who He is packed into this one verse which is only 14 words in total in Hebrew, that there's, I think there's plenty for us to take in just by spending the rest of our time today focusing there together. Verse 2, Amos chapter 1. The sermon title comes from those opening words. In Hebrew, Yahweh mitzion yeshar, the Lord roars from Zion, and every one of those words is packed full of meaning. In those three words, there's a who, there's a what, and there's a where that all carry a lot of significance for the message of this book. The first word is the who. Who's uttering his voice here? Again, it's not just Amos on behalf of God. It's God himself speaking, roaring through Amos. And like God does so often through the Old Testament scriptures, he uses this name for himself that he first took for himself way back in Exodus chapter 3 where he met Moses at the burning bush. You remember that anywhere in the Old Testament where you see this word Lord not written with a capital L and then lowercase o-r-d, when you see that, it's translating the Hebrew word Adonai which just means a master. When you see it in all capital letters, like it is here in verse 2, it's specifically translating the Hebrew word Yahweh, or Jehovah, which is a kind of personalized form of the Hebrew verb to be. Remember in the book of Exodus, Moses was... Uh, a child of Israel, a Hebrew baby who had been adopted by Pharaoh's daughter instead of being killed, which is what Pharaoh commanded for all of the baby Hebrew boys to be, to be put to death. But through God's providence, Moses survived and was adopted by Pharaoh's own daughter and grew up in the house of Pharaoh, being educated in Egypt. And he knew that he was a Hebrew. He knew that he was a descendant of Abraham. And one day, as an adult, Moses saw one of his fellow Hebrew countrymen 
They were all being enslaved, remember, by the Egyptians and forced to do hard labor. Moses saw one of the Hebrew slaves being beaten by an Egyptian guard. And so Moses struck the guard and killed him, the Egyptian, and buried him in the sand. And then, fearing that he'd be found out and killed himself, Moses fled into the wilderness. And there in the wilderness, he came across a bush in the desert that was engulfed in fire, but it wasn't being consumed by the fire because the fire wasn't any ordinary natural fire. It was the manifest presence of God himself in all of his holiness, in all of his glory. It's where God spoke to Moses and told Moses to go back to Egypt to confront the Pharaoh and to demand that the Pharaoh let the Hebrew people go free from their slavery and go to the promised land. And when Moses said to God, well, who shall I say sent me? When Pharaoh asks, what name should I give him? God said, you tell Pharaoh that I am sent you. Tell him I am that I am. And that's this Hebrew word Yahweh, four little letters in Hebrew, yud Hey vav Hey. Again, it's, it's a, a form of the common verb to be. And it just simply means I am. It's a reference to the self-existence of God. He is. Nothing made him. He just is, right? He didn't come to be. He wasn't created. He didn't have a beginning. Nothing and no one made him. He just is and always has been and always will be as the eternal God of the universe, who is the one who made everything that exists in the universe, including Pharaoh. And that was the message, right? Then you tell him, you tell Pharaoh, I am, is talking to him. The name that God took for himself was meant to speak to Pharaoh, who was the king of Egypt, who thought he was a pretty big deal, who was full of arrogance and pride. And Pharaoh didn't bow to anybody, did he? And God said, you tell that prideful king who bows to no one on this earth that I am infinitely greater than him and I am infinitely sovereign over him as the eternal Lord of heaven and earth. That's the beginning of what the word... I am means, that, that all capitalized word Lord in your Old Testament scriptures. And more than that too, this name of God pulls significance from that context in which God first took that name for himself again there at this burning bush with Moses in the wilderness outside of Egypt where, remember, Moses was required to take off his sandals because the presence of God in that place rendered the place itself, the ground on which Moses was walking, to be holy ground. And so this flaming fire of the manifestation of God's blazing glory and holiness is also implied by this name Yahweh, wherever we see it in the Old Testament written, Lord in all capital letters. That's also what God is, see? 
I'm not just uncreated. I'm not just self-existent. I'm not just the I am. I am holy is also what the name implies. Holy means righteous. Holy means pure. Holy means separate and distinct, qualitatively different to an infinite degree from everything in creation. And the image of God's absolute, perfectly, infinitely pure righteousness and holiness, the image is the image of fire, the burning bush the pillar of fire that led the people through the wilderness, illuminating everything that was dark and unholy by the holy light of his glory. The burning altar of sacrifice in the tabernacle and in the temple, incinerating everything that was unholy, cauterizing, refining, purifying like a blazing furnace, all that falls short of God's glory and holiness, like, like precious gold in a blazing furnace. All of that is what God is as the immeasurably righteous and pure and holy God who he is. All of that is implied. All of that is indicated by his name, Yahweh, the Lord, who is eternally without beginning and without end and who is holy, holy, holy as the seraphim in Isaiah 6 sing to him. And all throughout scriptures, God reveals this, that his eternal, infinite, unchangeable holiness means two things. It means both his righteous judgment against sin, against everything that is unholy, which he will purge from the world one day in the fires of his holiness. And it also means his merciful salvation of sinners who fall short of his glory, but who are cleansed and refined and purified by the blazing fires of his holiness. And that's what God was revealing to Moses, right? Right there at the burning bush. Two things, both that in judgment, Pharaoh was going to be destroyed and that in mercy, the people of Israel were going to be saved by this God whose holiness burns and blazes with infinite divine power and authority. That's what was indicated on the mountain at Sinai in the wilderness. Both the justice and the righteousness of the God who gave them the law and said, you shall be holy as I am holy, and his great mercy and compassion because the first chance that they got, they dishonored him and fashioned an idol of a calf made out of gold. And he said, the Lord, all caps, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, right? That's who he is, as the great I am. That's what his name means. He's the one who is, he's the one who's holy, and the holy one is the one who is an infinite furnace of burning justice and righteousness and mercy and steadfast love, able to both incinerate everything that is unholy and wipe it away and to mercifully save and refine and forge lives which fall short of his glory into the very image of his glory and holiness. That's who he is. 
All of that blazing faithfulness of God in all of his justice and mercy is what his holiness consists of. And all of that's implied in this name, Yahweh, the Lord, who appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and who Amos says here in verse 2, roars from Zion. And that's the second really significant word in the verse. The Lord, this God, is roaring like a ferocious animal from Zion. In Judges chapter 14, Samson, remember, was walking through the vineyards of Timnah, and he heard the roar of a lion. Why do lions roar? They roar when they're about to attack. They roar to stun and paralyze their prey with fear just before they maul them. So what did Samson do when he heard the lion roar? Well, knowing that the lion was about to tear him to pieces, he tore the lion to pieces in the strength of the Lord. But see, that's what this word roar means. It's... It's not a tame word, it's a savage word, it's a vicious word. It means something bigger, way bigger and way stronger than you is coming for you. <laughs> and means to tear you to pieces. And this is where it gets uncomfortable, right? This is where we get tempted to kind of hurry past scriptures like this and move on to more pleasant and calm and tranquil places in the word of God that, that make us feel better. And a big part of our discomfort is because we don't really want to think about God in these terms as a roaring lion, ready to shred, ready to devour. That's what the word roar does. It, it points forward to what happens next after the roar. Suffering, destruction, death. And people, people don't want to think of God in those terms. And they will go so far as denying the very existence of God so that they don't have to contend with him in those terms. But Amos is saying, make no mistake, this is who the one true God is. And then he tells us that this blazingly holy God who roars in his justice does it from Zion. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is, the, of course, the capital city of Judah in the south. It was the capital city of all Israel under David before the kingdom was divided. And Zion is that mountain in Jerusalem where the temple was, where the altar was, where God dwelt in all of the manifest glory of his holiness there in the Holy of Holies. And there in the temple, and especially on the altar, where sacrifices were constantly being made to atone for the sins of the people. Again, all of that imagery, all of that symbolism of fire continues and comes to bear again, right? Depicting both the severity of God's holy justice being poured out on this animal because of the sin of the people, consuming the sacrifice, and the severity of God's mercy because in consuming the animal God wasn't consuming the people he was sparing them from the same fate as the animal 
justice, mercy, holiness, faithfulness. And so see, to us who are finite human beings and, and whose perspective is defined by what we see and what we experience in the world around us, and as sinners, too, who ignore by nature the things that God has revealed and, and both in creation and in his word, we suppress that stuff. To us, the concepts of mercy and wrath seem opposed to one another, right? You can't put those things together, usually, in our minds. They're mutually exclusive ordinarily. They can't be reconciled ordinarily. They seem to cancel each other out, right, in our minds. But God, this is, this is what Amos wants us to know. God in his perfect, holy, unchanging nature as God is the one in whom mercy and wrath both perfectly exist together. That's what Amos is unafraid and unashamed and unabashed about proclaiming. Don't ever try to separate them, or you end up with a false god on one side of the equation or the other. This is who God is. And I want you to recognize this. From the portion of Amos 1 and 2 that John read earlier, and it'll continue on down through verse 6 of chapter 2, which we'll see next week. Notice that there's this phrase that gets repeated over and over and over in this opening section of Amos where God says the words for three transgressions and for four, right? He says those words six times about six different Gentile nations from verse 3 of chapter 1 to verse 3 of chapter 2 against Damascus and Gaza and Tyre and Ammon and Edom. God proclaims judgment beginning with those words for three transgressions and for four. And then, in verses 4 and 6 of chapter 2, he says the same thing. He repeats the same words, the same refrain, to Judah and to Israel, his people, for three transgressions and for four. Why, Why is he saying that? What's the significance of that formula for three transgressions and for four? It's this, very simply. It's that the unchanging, perfect nature of the one true God is that he is the one who is both perfect, holy wrath and perfect, holy mercy, always together at the same time. And that is how he deals with sinners. Right? He's not wrath one day and mercy the next. He's not the wrathful God of the Old Testament and the merciful God of the New. He's the one and the only one who were both holy mercy and holy wrath, and, and they exist together in the perfection of who he always was and is yesterday, today, and, to, and forever. And, and here's the point, the terrifying roar of the eternal, almighty, holy God's condemnation and judgment against the pagan Gentile nations and against Judah and Israel, his own people, the roar of divine judgment only came after a long season of divine patience and mercy. See? It's not 
after one transgression, I'm done with you, right? It's not first-time obedience or else you're instantly, eternally condemned and obliterated by my wrath, is it? Well, maybe it is with us. Maybe we treat one another that way. Maybe parents tend to and sometimes are taught to treat their kids that way. First-time obedience. Don't give them any more chances and then let them have it. I've read those books. We threw them all out. This isn't God. See, not according to Amos. God waited to punish patiently through years and seasons and generations of repeated persistent sinfulness before roaring against them in judgment. He wasn't hasty. He wasn't rash. He waited patiently, even with Adam and Eve, right? He didn't just wipe them out. They were subject to death and all mankind with them, but they didn't actually get destroyed that day. A whole race came that God might deliver from sin and condemnation. Praise God that now in 2023, we're a part of that race and recipients of that mercy and haven't just been wiped out in the wrath of God. God waits until the cup of sinfulness is overflowing the brim because he is slow to anger. That's not just how he was on occasion. That's who he is. He's not a divine hothead who's quick to lash out and quick to destroy. When he decides to destroy, it's coming, but he is a divinely patient and loving God desiring that people who are made in his image, who, who though went astray from him, that they would come to repentance. Listen to the words of Ezekiel. As I live, declares the Lord, which means according to what I am, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, he pleads with sinners in his word. He's not slow to keep his promise of returning in holy judgment on the coming day of the Lord, Peter assures us. He's not slow, he's patient and desiring that all would come to repentance. That's who he is. Justice and mercy. Condemnation and wrath, but only after prolonged patience and mercy and an opportunity to heed the call to repentance. In Luke 19, Jesus, who of course is the incarnation of this great I am, this holy, unchanging God, all the fullness of deity in bodily form. Jesus, during the final week of his earthly life, after the triumphal entry, just days before the crucifixion, Jesus was walking with his disciples over the Mount of Olives to go back to Bethany after spending the day in the city of Jerusalem. And he looks back over his shoulder at the great city of Jerusalem, the city of God. 
but, but it had long since gone astray from God and let idolatry and immorality and hypocrisy infest the city. And Jesus looks back at this city over his shoulder, knowing that within a matter of days, their self-righteousness, their hypocrisy, their, their resistance towards God, their hatred of God, would boil over in the form of his own crucifixion at their hands. And as Jesus looks, knowing that, he didn't do what we might do. He didn't rage at the city. He didn't stand there and sneer and curse the city, which would soon curse him. He wept over Jerusalem. And he knew also that in a matter of years, because of what Jerusalem would do to Christ, the judgment of God would be poured out on the city and it would be destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. And so he wept. He didn't rub his hands with glee and said, you're going to get yours. He wept. He longed for the city to repent and turn and be spared, even though he knew that, that they wouldn't. And so he wept as the incarnate God because he knew what was coming for Jerusalem. See, and that's, that's who God is. When the wrath of God comes, it always comes after the cup has been filled to overflowing with unrepentant wickedness. Divine judgment always comes when it's, in a sense, overdue, at least by our estimation. And as Jesus himself showed, as the fullness of God in bodily form, divine judgment, when it comes, comes accompanied by divine tears shed over recalcitrant and unrepentant sinners. Take no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. Glorifies me to do it and put my justice on display, but I take no pleasure in it. Would that they would repent and be so the God who reveals himself in Amos is the God of unchanging, eternal patience and mercy and moral providence, which is manifested in judgment, not impulsively, not instantly, only after three transgressions and four. And we will do well not only to never take God's patience for granted and not only to be led by his divine mercy to true repentance, but to manifest it ourselves in our own attitudes towards the world, towards the lost, towards one another, especially as fellow recipients of this patient mercy and love of God. This is why patience and love are fruits of the Holy Spirit towards our children who we so often punish after that first transgression in contrast to the great gospel patience of the one true God who is our God who only roared against the nations after three transgressions and after four. This this Amos is revealing. God is revealing through Amos. 
this is our God. This is who he is. This is the beauty of his holiness, only to be seen and known in both righteous wrath and sovereign mercy, always held together. And the message for his people, for Israel, who have been so graciously blessed by God's mercy and grace, the message is, look, to whom much is given, much is required. They of all people in the world, on the planet, they should have been the ones, having received so much mercy and patience from God, they should have been the ones who were uncompromisingly devoted to his word and his law. They should have been the ones who poured out patient, merciful, self-sacrificing love towards others because they'd been lavished with it for centuries by God. But as we're going to see throughout the whole book, that wasn't the case. They didn't love as they'd been loved. They didn't honor him as the God who he is. They took his patience for granted. They lived in license. And so like a lion, he roared. And in roaring, in uttering his voice from Zion, we hear and we behold him in all of his holiness. God of justice, God of wrath, God of mercy, God of love in the full effulgence of what he is and who he is. The roaring lion of the tribe of Judah, as we well know, is also the Lamb of God who was slain for our sins on the cross where justice and mercy meet and kissed and where God was most glorified in putting the fullness of his holiness on display as he satisfied the wrath of God and unleashed the mercy of God towards us. So the question is and will be for us, how should we as God's people, as the Israel of God to whom he speaks, how should we then live? who have been so loved by this God, who is always, at the same time, so righteously wrathful against sin and so unspeakably merciful towards us who sinned against him. What sort of love ought to characterize us towards him, towards one another, towards the world? What sort of mercy, what sort of patience, what sort of grace should pour out of us in whose hearts the love of God has been shed abroad. Let's stop there. We'll take it up next week, but but let's pray together. That God will, as we walk through this book, that he will reveal the beauty of his holiness to us in both his majesty and and, and justice and his mercy. And that he'll use that to transform our lives and conform us into the same image of his glory from one level to the next. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, how grateful we are for the way that you reveal yourself in your word. Again, God, we simply pray, help us understand. Help us to see, to taste, and to savor your holiness and your goodness and your purity your righteousness and your wrath and your mercy and your love. And Father, would this vision of your great glory bring us to a greater understanding of the depth of our sin in contrast 
And then, Father, the greatness of your love towards us in Christ. And may that increasing fullness of the knowledge of your holiness create in us more devotion and more love, more faithfulness, more commitment to serve you and to honor you and to glorify you in our lives. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Take your bulletins, turn to page 14, and stand together, and let's respond to God and his word and offer sacrifices of praise to him as we sing, Hast thou heard him, seen him, known him? Let's sing. <laughs> 